um, I want everybody that can be in here to be in here, okay? And I want everybody that can hear this sermon to hear it tonight. So, however, we need to work that out, okay, Sandy, if you could. But, Lord, I pray tonight, just make sure, Lord, that every person is locked in to give you our best ear, our full attention, our focus. Lord, help everything be accomplished in through this time that your will to be done in Jesus' name. Let a mighty anointing come, Lord, I pray that we'd be captivated and locked in. In Jesus' name, come speak through me. All right. We got everything worked out in there? Okay. All right, I'm going to talk about tonight, Communion Hebrew Roots, Part 12, in regards to Pentecost, okay? So the first thing is we just celebrated Passover. As we come out of that, the next day after Passover starts unleavened bread. Unleavened bread goes for seven days. And however this falls, the next day after Passover begins this this interesting thing where God told them the counting of the omer, which is just a sheaf. And omer is just like a sheaf of barley or sheaf of wheat. And so every day... They would gather a sheaf up and they would wave it before the Lord that began the day after Pentecost, the day after Passover. And it was to be counted every day for 50 days up till Pentecost. So that I guess there could be that counting going on. It was so that they wouldn't forget to have Pentecost or say they would make sure that it was on the same time. Um, every year it's supposed to be exactly 50 days after Passover. So um this was going on. The counting of the Omer was going on while Jesus was appearing to the disciples and others. And Passover is the first day, but the next day began that unleavened bread, which was a different feast. A lot of times people run them all together. Even in the Bible, it'll say the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and it's referring to all three. But there was Passover, then the next day was unleavened bread. And then that week, the day after the Sabbath would be first fruits every time. So however it fell, if it fell on a Monday, Passover was Monday, Tuesday would be unleavened bread, and then the day after the Sabbath on Sunday would be first fruits. If it fell in the week where Thursday was Passover, then Friday would be unleavened bread, and then Sunday would be first fruits. And God made sure that this fell in exactly the way it should have fell to where um, when Jesus came, He would have had his Passover meal with his disciples on Tuesday night. Then on Wednesday, he would be hanging on the cross. And this was unleavened, this was Passover rather. That night when he was buried in the tomb began unleavened bread. He was in the tomb for unleavened bread. And then right after the Sabbath, he raised from the dead on first fruits. And so everything was so precise. It was amazing how God did this. And so this is what we're in right now, but it's the counting of the omers going on leading up to Pentecost. And Pentecost is known as Shavuot, which is weeks in Hebrew, and it's exactly 50 days after Passover. That's where we get Pentecost from. I'll talk about this at the end of my sermon, but on Pentecost, it was interesting because during Passover, everybody's getting all the leaven out, and we're going to talk about leaven tonight getting all the leaven out of their lives. But then on Pentecost, 50 days later, the priests were required to take two loaves of bread that were leavened and wave them before the Lord. 
And to this day, the book of Ruth is read, and I'm going to explain all that at the end of the sermon, okay? But right now, let me say one more thing, and I'm going to get into this part about the leaven, the, the leaven of the Pharisees, okay? But Israel had, to, had Passover, then they had their Red Sea experience. So Passover is kind of like the blood being applied. The Red Sea is like a water baptism. But then God led them to Sinai. And when they got to Sinai, this is where God came down on the mountain, and there was fire, there was smoke, the voice of God was heard like a shofar, and the Torah was given to them. So the word of God was released at Pentecost. Okay, But then we know that 1,500 years later that the Spirit of God was released on Pentecost. So both the Word of God and the Spirit of God are connected to Pentecost. And today as Christians, the two most uh, important things in our Christianity beyond salvation is the Word of God and the Spirit of God in our lives. Okay, And if you, if you don't have this balanced out, because some people may have the Word of God, but they don't know the Holy Spirit, they don't have the Spirit of God in their life to very much degree at all and so it's very a lot of times it's very dry spiritually they're spiritually dead um they know the word of god to a degree but they don't usually understand it very much because the holy spirit has to help you understand it and they live a very sterile life but then you have people that may not have the the word of god in their life like they should but they have the move of the spirit and those people a lot of times tend to get flaky but whenever you have both the word of god and the spirit of god together it brings maturity so we need both it's just like tonight the spirit of god will move he has been moving now he'll move in great power but we've got to have the word of god as well so what i'm going to deal with tonight i'm going to go quick and i'm asking everybody to follow me along and read these scriptures i put a lot in your notes those that will get this from the internet all of the notes should be there but we had to condense it down for those that are here that we printed it. But I want you to follow along because I want you to see that Pastor Scott is not just giving his opinion because some of these things are probably going to rock some people's worlds, okay? So we're going to go straight to the Word. And what I want to deal with tonight at Pentecost, well, I'm talking about Pentecost, rather, in this communion um, Hebrew Roots series, Shavuot, I want to deal with the leaven of the Pharisees. So let's go through this. Matthew 16, verse 5. The disciples came to the other side of the sea, and they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Did everybody catch that? The leaven, the yeast. And they began to discuss this among themselves, saying, He said that we, should, we, uh, we didn't have any bread. But Jesus was aware of this and said, You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Did you not understand and remember the five loaves and the 5,000? How many baskets full you picked up? Or the seven loaves and the 4,000? How many large baskets full that you picked up? How is it that you do not understand? Um, I do not speak to you about bread. But beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood. He did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. All right, so here we go. The leaven of the Pharisees. This is a real issue today. All right, so Matthew 13, 33. This is kind of an obscure scripture, 
but it's, it's very important in this sermon. I'm going to do my best to hit all this, but I'm going to move quick, okay? So please follow me. But it said, another parable he spoke to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. All right. Now I want you to notice there's three lumps of bread that were leavened. And then Galatians, Paul was rebuking the Galatians and was warning them because they were allowing some strange teaching to come into their church. And he said, don't you understand that a little little leaven leavens the whole lump? You know, you can't allow just a little bit. It'll ruin the whole thing. All right, so when Jesus was talking about these three lumps, I believe that it was prophetic. And what I mean by that is this. Leaven is never seen as a good thing in Scripture. It's always seen in the New Testament as sin, okay? And we're to purge the leaven out of our lives, out of our homes, out of our churches, and keep it out, which I'll deal with this as we go. But these three lumps, I believe, are prophetic of how things were going to fall. All right, as Jesus came, we know he died, raised from the dead, and he, this was his early church, the church that he directly discipled those people. Um, they planted this early work. And this was a New Testament book of Acts church, all right? But Jesus knew that as time went on, things were going to change. And I believe that these three lumps of dough, I've got to move quickly. I could belabor this, but I believe the first lump would have to do with the Catholic Church. It started around 300 A.D., okay? The Catholic Church has a lot of leaven in it. I'll talk more about that later. Later on, we know in history, when um, the Islamic forces came in and Constantinople fell, that the eastern branch of the Roman Catholic Church got upset with Rome. They split off. Now, here's the second lump of dough, what is known as the Eastern Orthodox Church. The Eastern Orthodox Church is just a split off of Catholicism. You see them, for example, in Russia. I mean, you guys have ever seen the priest in Russia, and they got these big robes and everything. They're not Catholic. They're Eastern Orthodox. It's totally different, okay? And this was the second lump of dough. But here's the third lump of dough. The third lump was when Martin Luther split off the Catholic Church with the Great Reformation. And all of us have been affected by this Reformation, 1517. And this is now the Protestant Church. Martin Luther got this little bit of revelation that we're saved by grace, through faith, faith in Christ. It's not works, it's not through the Catholic Church, it's by faith in Christ alone that you're saved. He got that little revelation, but it was enough to spark a reformation. And that split off. But you have to understand that even though Martin Luther left the Catholic Church, there was still a lot of the Catholic Church still in him. Just like when Moses left Egypt, there was still a lot of Egypt in Moses until God could get that out of him, okay? And so even though we had the the Reformation take place, there was still a lot of leaven that was sown into the Protestant movement. And so in a very broad look of things, Jesus was predicting that there would be these three lumps, but there would also be a lot of leaven. So this will make sense later as I come back to it. All right, so the first thing I want to say is this. We cannot make any excuses whatsoever for not having a New Testament biblical book of Acts church. There's no excuse. 
The only reason why people have this is because they tolerate it. And number one, one of the reasons I believe that things are the way they are is because people, by and large, refuse to make God's house a house of prayer. A praying church is a powerful church. And a prayerless church is a weak church many times that has a lot of defeat in it. It doesn't have to. They make that choice. Mark eleven seventeen, Jesus said, It is written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. In 1 Samuel twelve twenty three, Moreover, as for me, uh, Samuel said, Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, but I will instruct you in a good and right way. God has called us to be a people of prayer. Let me tell you something. If you feel in any way that you've got some kind of call on your life, some kind of destiny that God's wanting to use you to do anything, if I were you, I would quit being so distracted by other things. And I would get my focus on the Lord. And I would get my focus on my prayer life being powerful and studying the Word of God. There's too many people nowadays that don't know the Word of God. And they don't know the Spirit of God. They don't have powerful prayer lives. I mean, there's a lot of different examples I could give, but people get so caught up with hobbies and other things in life. You ask them about their hobbies and they can tell you everything. But you ask them about their prayer life, they have little to say. Too many things distract and take away from prayer, but prayer is the most important thing because that's where we're connecting with Him. In my life, my priorities line up with this. And number one, God is number one in my life. Therefore, my prayer life is a central issue. In my time with him, my life revolves around that. That's number one. I hope I'm not losing some people in this. But number two, the most important thing in my life is my wife and my marriage. Then number three is my family, my daughter. Then number four is the church and ministry. And then number five are things like hobbies in that order. I don't let things like number five take away from number one. And I would hate to think that, you know, as we go on and God's got this revival and he's got things to come, that there would come a time when God says, all right, now I've got people. I need to use people. I need to find somebody I can use. And because of prayerlessness and because of disconnecting, that God says, well, I wanted to be able to use these people, but some of them I can't use them. They're not ready. So let's make God's house a house of prayer again. Did you know that there was a lady that was a Satanist and she got saved? And she was given her testimony. And she, she used to infiltrate Christian churches pretending to be a Christian and try to destroy them from within if she could. And she said she trained other people about this. And she said the number one thing that she was taught and she taught others was to make sure that you get prayer out of that church. If they have corporate prayer, you infiltrate that and you shut it down however you can do it. That's number one. Until you shut down prayer, we're not going to be able to do anything else. A praying church is a powerful church. A praying Christian is a powerful Christian. All right, number two. The power of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 1, 2 who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ, sprinkled with His blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. So there is a sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. 
I'm going to read some scriptures, so bear with me, because I have to get all this in context, and I have to show people it's in the Word. There's a lot of people have a lot of leaven in them. We're going to deal with the leaven of the Pharisees that's in people tonight. Jesus said in John 14, 16, I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. How many of you guys love and appreciate the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is not a bird, okay? He's not a, a little tongue of fire. He's a person. He's God. And some people say, well, I, I love God the Father. I love God the Son. I love Jesus. But they don't like the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you something. I question how much you love God the Father and God the Son if you don't like the Holy Spirit. Because God is triune. He's three in one. So Jesus said, I will send the helper, the comforter. He'll be with you. Verse 17, that is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because he did not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and he will be in you. See, at that time, Jesus hadn't died yet. The Holy Spirit wasn't going to be in them. But he said he was telling them, you've sensed the spirit of God around you. But he'll be in you. And I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, and you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by the Father. Let me just kind of stop there and just repeat that scripture. Jesus, in another translation, says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That really needs to be meditated on. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, who then has happened? What then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but my father's who sent me. These things I've spoken to you while abiding with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. Everybody catch that. He will teach you all things. That right there is where a lot of problems lie. Because you've got the leaven of the Pharisees in this guy, and then he spreads it real good into everybody else. But if people knew the Holy Spirit for themselves, they, they would recognize the leaven of the Pharisees, and they wouldn't want to be a part of that. We've got to have the Holy Spirit teaching us all things. And bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I live with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give it to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now I've told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the rule of this world is coming as nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let's go from here. Then in John 15, 16, verse 5. 
He says, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asked, where are you going? But because I said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is for your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment because the rule of this world has been judged. But I want you to notice here one of the roles of the Holy Spirit. (coughs) He will convict the world of sin. And the problem is, is that some people no longer depend on the Holy Spirit to convict of sin. They're trying to do things through their little programs and their little entertainment. And as I go through this sermon, it's going to hopefully open up how shallow that really is. We've got to have the Holy Spirit convicting the world of sin. This is not something that is an intellectual debate and you win the argument and so now they get saved. It doesn't really work like that. Most of the time, you're never going to see somebody truly saved because you're fussing with them and arguing with them over something intellectually. The way that people truly come to Jesus is by the Spirit of God penetrating their heart and drawing them. Verse 12. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. And that's where a lot of people live, right there. Once we get to know the Holy Spirit as a person, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, that's the last thing Paul wrote to the Corinthians, is that they may know the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Are y'all hearing this tonight? Some of this stuff is very important. That they may know the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. When he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he'll speak. And he will disclose it to you, what is to come. And he will glorify me. He will take what is mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father Father has are mine. Therefore, I said he takes what is mine and will disclose it to you. And so the Holy Spirit comes. He's to teach and guide us and lead us. The Holy Spirit is to live in us as Christians. The Holy Spirit is to come upon us in power so we can be a witness. And Jesus said this. Jesus said in John 14, 12, greater works will you do because I go to the Father. Well, Jesus said himself that after he goes and the Holy Spirit comes, that his people would do greater works than he did. But unfortunately, there's some people that have never read that in the Bible. I encourage people to really get, pray that God purge all that leaven out of you, all this false stuff you've been taught, and get into the Bible and read it for what it says. And believe it. See, the greatest thing is, is when you get people that just accept Jesus as their Savior. And I believe this is what happened to David Hogan, if you want to know the truth. Some of you guys are familiar with him. But you get somebody saved and you give them the Bible and you say, okay, read this, this, and this, and this. And they come back, they've read it, and they just believe it. 
they, they haven't been, all the leaven of the Pharisees hasn't put, been put in them, where now they're full of doubt, fear, and unbelief, and confusion. They just read it, and they just believe it. And so then, they go out, and they see a sick person, they're like, hey, let me pray for you. And you know what? God heals people. The gifts being in operation. Romans chapter 12, the gifts of the Father. Which many people call it the gifts of the Father. You can read the gift listing in Romans 12. Many people believe that when you accept Christ as your Savior, some of these gifts begin to be in operation. Ephesians 4.11 talks about the gifts of the Son, where Jesus has bestowed his fivefold ministry into the church. Why? For the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the works of service, to be brought to maturity and unity of the faith. But what you see a lot of times is what has happened where, by and large, the fivefold ministry isn't even acknowledged in the greater body of Christ anymore. First Corinthians chapter 12. So you've got the gifts that many people call Romans 12 the gifts of the Father, okay? Then you've got the gifts of the Son, Ephesians 4.11. Then you've got the gifts of the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12. And the gifts of the Spirit are so powerful. You have the vocal gifts of tongues, interpretation, and prophecy. You've got the revelation gifts, words of knowledge, words of wisdom, discerning of spirits. You've got the power gifts of faith, healing, and the working of miracles. And I say this with love, but I just say it as truth. If you're not, if, you're, if your church don't tell me that your church is a New Testament church if you don't have the gifts at work in your church. It's not. Hello. This is just the way that it is. If the power of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the gifts are not in operation in your church, then quit calling yourself a New Testament church. Listen, somebody has got to go like this. The standard is way down here on a level it never was meant to be. Somebody needs to read the Bible and go, wait a second. We just, we've been missing God, guys. Let's, let's raise the standard back up here where it's supposed to be. Normal Christianity. <laughs> and so you have a lot of powerless churches because they refuse to make God's house a house of prayer. They, by and large, reject the person and the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus said, I'm going away, but I'm sending the comforter. Oh, we don't want that comforter. He comes in and messes with things. You know, he's, it seems like all this tongue stuff, and they don't like it. And number three, overcoming sin. This is why there's so many defeated people. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Now, everybody hear me about this. I told you what the Holy Spirit's job is. I mean, he's to be our comforter. He's to be our teacher. He's to be our counselor. He's to be our guide. He's going to help us understand all truth, all of that. But in regards to the world, what's the Holy Spirit's job? He will convict the world of sin. So that's the Holy Spirit's job. Now, here's the preacher's job. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, when Paul wrote to the church of Corinthians... He said, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test? Now, I'm going somewhere with this. 
And then Paul wrote in Philippians 2.12, So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not in my presence only, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. Romans chapter 8. Ready? Just remember that Paul said those things. Examine yourself and work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now let's go to Romans 8. Romans 8 verse 1. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. We've been forgiven. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. Because see, God gave this law, 613, law, 613 points to the Torah that the, the Jewish people had to keep. And there's no way that they could keep it because in their own humanity they couldn't. But what the law failed to do because of human weakness, now what? The Spirit of God comes into us. And now by the Holy Spirit, we can become like Jesus. God now can circumcise our hearts where it's not a circumcision of the flesh it's something that happens in the heart god now takes his word and he writes it on the tables of our hearts and what our flesh would have been weak and impossible to do the spirit of god living in us causes us to be able to do this to be able to live righteously for the, what the law could not do because it was through the flesh god did sending his own son in our likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. So the Spirit of God lives in us. The Spirit of God empowers us. The Spirit of God causes us to be overcomers. Verse 4, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. We do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death. But the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. But it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through a Spirit who dwells in you. So then, my brethren, you are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if you live by the Spirit, you are putting the deeds of the body under. You're bringing them to death, okay? You will live. So there's a death to the body, a death to the flesh, and a walking in the Spirit. Is this making sense? For you are all being led by the Spirit of God, these that are sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading again to fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out a father. The spirit himself. Now here we go. So what is one of the Holy Spirit's jobs for us as Christians now right here? The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. I think that I need to belabor this point. This is not my job and your job to try to convince somebody that they're a Christian. 
It is the Holy Spirit's job to convict them and draw them unto Jesus. And it is the Holy Spirit's job to bear witness with their spirit that they are children of God. Is that not right there clear? And so what the problem is, is that a lot of people are going around producing a lot of false converts because they're trying to win them over in the flesh instead of letting the Holy Spirit do it. If children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, indeed we suffer with him that we might be glorified with him. All right. So here's how Paul dealt with this. As a leader, he told the people, listen, you examine yourself and you make sure that you're in the faith. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That was his message to them. You examine yourself. You make sure that you're in the faith. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That was his job to encourage them to do that. But it was the Holy Spirit's job to convict them of any sin and then to lead them to repentance. That they, they're drawn and they repent and then the Holy Spirit within them bears witness that they're right with God, that they're a child of God and that they're right. Does anybody see what I'm saying? It's not my job to get up here and try to convince everybody that they're right with God and that they're fine. It's my job to tell people you make sure that you're right with God and you're fine. It's the Holy Spirit's job to bear witness with their spirit that they are right with God. This is a big deal. Because there's a lot of places that are telling people what they want to hear and they're pacifying them, they're watering things down and it's causing people to not really be truly right with God. But I'm going to skip over some of this. Go down to verse 26, and I need to move on. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as others should, as we should, rather. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart, the hearts knows that the mind of the Spirit is, therefore, I'm sorry, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. But in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes with groanings. This is why some people that don't understand the things of the Spirit, they have the Word, but they don't have the Spirit in operation in their life. And so they don't fully understand the Bible. And they don't understand the difference because they don't have it in operation in their, in their life. They don't have it in operation in their church. And so they don't understand the deeper things of the Spirit. They don't understand the difference when Jesus said true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. And they don't understand spirit worship. They don't understand the, the prayers and the intercession and the groaning and travailing that goes on because it doesn't make sense to them. And they don't understand that there's a difference between that and a gift of giving an interpretation that requires, or giving a message in tongues that requires an interpretation for the corporate body. They don't understand the difference. They don't even understand the difference between a prayer language and a corporate message. That's why we need not only the Word, we need the Spirit of God. All right, 1 John 3, 4. Everyone, now listen, I want you to read this with me because I want you to see that John wrote this and not Pastor Scott. 
All right? It's in the Bible. Do y'all believe John was a man of God? you believe that what he wrote was true? All right, we'll see. Because I guarantee you there's some people that won't like it. I mean, not here, but there's people out there that just... See, here's what people do. They don't like something, and so they get their little scissors out and they cut it out. Seriously. All right, here we go. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure that no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him. God's seed is in us. And he cannot sin because he's born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So that rocks some people's boats. But see, here's what happens. And I'm about to show you this in Scripture. Because of the lack of of praying church and the lack of the power of the Holy Spirit being in a church, in a ministry, there's a lack of the move of the Spirit of God to convict people, and there's a lack of the power of God to help them to overcome their sin. So therefore, now, we've got to come up with doctrines that make everybody feel comfortable where they're at, because, hey, we don't have the power to do nothing about it anyways. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things pass away because new things have come. And we all know this. The Bible's clear. Grace is not a license to sin. Grace is what empowers us to overcome sin and to be victorious in Jesus. That's what it is. So 2 Corinthians 5, 17, old things pass away. Everything becomes new. John is saying, once you've been born of God, you cannot continue to live a life of sin. You're a new creature. You're different. The God seeds in you. But I would say, examine yourself. (laughs) Make sure that you're in the faith. Because people that feel comfortable living a life of sin, the Bible says, this isn't Pastor Scott's opinion, the Bible says that they're not really children of God. And they need to become children of God. So my job is to tell them, examine yourself. Make sure you're in the faith. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. If there's stuff in your life, don't keep it there. Get it right with God. And then it's the Holy Spirit's job to come in and convict them of sin. It's sad because once that leaven of the Pharisees gets in people, did you know that once leaven gets in dough, it's, almost, it's really virtually impossible to get it back out? The only way that that could be gotten back out is a miracle by God. Once that leaven of the Pharisees gets in people, it's almost impossible to get it out of them. You'll preach like this, and the whole time they're arguing in their mind against you. And you're just reading the Bible. And they're trying to find other arguments to come against. It's the leaven of the Pharisees. All right, so here's, here's another point. They make doctrines to accept sin. 
And this is very dangerous. But a lot of people are doing this. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 1. We're all familiar with this, but let me read this to you. And let me just ask you this question. Do you really think that by and large across the board that most churches are putting this into practice when I read it? You judge for yourself. 1 Corinthians 5, 1, it says, It's actually reported that there is immorality among you. <coughs> immorality such as a kind that does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. And this is probably like a stepmom. And you become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. From I on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit and with the power of the Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord, or the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as in fact you are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. And is everybody hearing this? I mean, this is, I don't understand how this is getting so not practiced in churches any longer. Don't associate with immoral people. I don't mean the people of the world or with the covetous and swindlers or idolaters um, that have gone out of the world, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or reviler or a drunkard or a swindler. Not with such a person, don't even eat a meal. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outsiders, God judges, judges them. Therefore, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Do you see what I'm saying? I really felt the Lord prompted me to share all this because of what's coming in revival. All these scriptures will be important that you lay down good, sound doctrine. And you get everything where it needs to be. All right, 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly sorrow produces repentance. Another translation says, Godly sorrow um, leads to repentance. And that's what it is. The, the Holy Spirit will convict people, and they, they'll be smitten with conviction. They'll, they'll be drawn by the Holy Spirit, and there'll be this godly sorrow that leads them to repentance. But that's the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God will move on the preaching of the Word. If preachers will preach the truth, if they'll preach the word of God, the spirit of God will anoint that and God will convict and he will draw unto Jesus. And that godly sorrow will lead them to repentance. And once they've really got things right with God, they will be this comforter of the Holy Spirit in them that is now filling them with joy, filling their heart with peace and is literally confirming to them that they're right with God. But this has to be the work of the Holy Spirit. And then Paul told them to expel the immoral person out, to deal with the sin in the camp, and to not associate with people 
that are immoral people, things like that. They call themselves Christians. But once this happened, the church obeyed Paul and did it. And then you read in 2 Corinthians 2, 5, where Paul was encouraging them now to receive him back because he repented. Now, how many knows it's important? Let me tell you a story. I've had some people come to me that have struggled with different sins in their life. And I've always, you know, prayed with them and stood with them and helped them through it. And I believe with all my heart that Jesus paid for us to walk victorious and overcome these things. I'm not going to tell them, oh, you're fine like you are, just stay like you are. Bull. No, we can overcome these things. And you know what? Now they're living a life of overcoming these things. There was a, there was a pastor I really love, and he was saying that he took this church, and when he took it, God spoke to him and said, listen, he was in his office praying, and the Holy Spirit spoke to him. The Lord told him, there's some sin in the camp. He told him the person, and he told him what he was doing. And he said, if you don't deal with this, I will no longer be with you. Now, how would you like to hear? And he just took the church. And so he said he thought to himself for a moment to kind of defend himself like, hey, I just got here, you know. But he said, I, I knew better than to do that. So he went and called the guy, and he told the guy, I want you to come in to my office. I need to talk to you. And the guy said, well, can I come through a back door where nobody will know I'm there? And the pastor said, I knew then. I knew then that what the Holy Spirit showed me was true. And he said, yeah, you can come through a back door. Let's meet at such and such time. So the man came into his office. True story, I know the pastor, and he told, told this story. And he said the man came in his office and sat there, and he said, I began to proceed to tell him, the Holy Spirit spoke to me this morning that you're dealing with this, this, and this. And he said that man, he said it was like, the power of God hit that man in the chest or something. But he said he began to weep uncontrollably, put his hands over his face. He was bawling. And he said he fell off the chair onto the floor. And he got up and went there beside him, sat on the floor, put his arm around him. And he led that man to repentance. And he said that man sat there and cried on his shoulder and really repented. And the pastor told him afterwards, he said, man, he said, I really believe that I've seen genuine repentance here today and he said i really believe that you you're going to change i really do and he said so i want you to know that i'm not going to repeat this to anybody if if it comes out it's because you told him he said it's not leaving this office for me and he said that man sat under his ministry for years for years so god is in the forgiving and the restoring business but you cannot tolerate the sin what would have happened if that pastor said nope i'm not dealing with it Where would that man and his family have ended up spiritually? That sin would have worked into the church. It would have polluted the church, hurt the church. So you deal with it, but you deal with it in love. And when when somebody's repentant, you walk them through that. All right, so that's what this scripture deals with. You can read St. Corinthians 2, uh, 5 through 11. But let me just read a couple things. Um, In verse 10, But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also, for indeed... What I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Look at this, verse 11, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his schemes. So we need to be really wise about satanic schemes and plots against people groups. And we've got to not tolerate sin, but we've got to pursue unity. All right, so let me keep moving on here. 
dangers of powerless Christianity and deception in these last days. See, a lot of times people read over scriptures, and I think that certain parts of a scripture really hit home, but then there'll be certain things that just kind of just fly over our heads, and we really don't stop and think about it for a minute. But let me read this to you. In 2 Timothy, I've got about four verses I want to read, and I want to show you something. There's others I could use, but for the sake of time, I just got to go through this. 2 Timothy 3.1, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come, or perilous times, and that can be translated fierce times in the Greek. Now, how many of you guys know that we're living in the last days, and things are getting more and more perilous and more and more fierce? And those that were here when I did the Spinal Prophecy series, you know a lot about the end time prophecies and what's to come. But we're definitely, we've slipped into these days, and the coming of the Lord is near. And here's some signs of the times. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brooders, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Look at this. This is the one everybody just reads real fast and doesn't think about. Holding to a form of godliness... Although they've denied its power, avoid such people. Now that's an interesting scripture. That there's people out there that hold to a form of godliness, but there's no power. And the Bible says to avoid such people. I'll just leave that where Paul left it. All right. Now here's Second Timothy two three. It's talking about end time prophecy. Apparently, somebody had written a letter and forged it in Paul's name, that the day of the Lord had already come. <laughs> Satan will try anything, right? And Paul was writing to the, the church of Thessalonica, and he said in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 3, he said, Let no one deceive you, for it being the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord will not come unless, now look at this, the apostasy come first. Now this is interesting. This is the best translation, I believe this is New American Standard. But the King James says falling away and the NIV uses the word rebellion there but the word in Greek is apostasia and what an apostate is is somebody you can look this up in Webster's don't believe me an apostate is somebody that walks with God but then turns their back on him and walks away and Paul said the day of the Lord will not come until an apostasy comes a great falling away, a rebellion. Because see, there's a lot of tares among the wheat. Amen? And the man of lawlessness, being the Antichrist, is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God. Remember I taught on this, how the Antichrist will sit in the temple and declare himself to be God, displaying himself as God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things, and you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one who's coming. Look at this. So it says about the false prophet and the Antichrist, right here, the one who's coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. 
and with all deception of wickedness for those who perish. Because, so there's going to be lying signs and wonders. There's going to be satanic things, satanic miracles, satanic weirdness. But then it says this, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. We have to have a love of the truth. I don't know about you, but I don't want any of the leaven of the Pharisees in me. I don't care where it is, but it's not going to be in me, and it's not going to be in my family, and it's not going to be in the church where I pastor. I want the leaven of the Pharisees out. And I want to have a love for the truth of God's word. He said, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved, for this reason God will send them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness now here's one more scripture i could give several others but i don't have the time first timothy 4 1 in the last days but the spirit explicitly says that in the latter times some will fall away or abandon the faith paying attention to deceitful or seducing spirits and doctrines of demons and this is what we're dealing with in this day and age that we live. There is, there is the leaven of the Pharisees. Are y'all hearing me? There's the leaven of the Pharisees teaching, and it's full of doctrines of demons and seducing spirits. So let me spell it out this way. Just like I said earlier, my job is to tell people, examine yourself, make sure that you're in the faith. Are y'all hearing me? Y'all ready? But anybody that teaches in a way, I don't care how they flower it up, how they twist the Bible, how eloquent they are, at the end of the day, if their message is making people feel that they can live a life of unrepentant sin and die and still go to heaven, they are preaching doctrines of demons, and it is a seducing spirit, a deceiving spirit. It is my job to tell people, make sure you're in the faith. Make sure you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Don't tolerate sin in your life. Get the sin out. And it's the job of the Holy Spirit to convict them, to draw them. Godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And when they are right with God, the Holy Spirit will comfort their heart and bear witness with them. But it is not my job to preach in a way that will condone sin. I'll never do it. And if, I, I love everybody, but if people don't like that, you're probably not going to connect very well. But I'm, just tell, I'm not saying that. I'm just, you're probably not. Because it's not going to change. My job is to lead people to repentance, to lead people to the foot of Jesus. Okay? Uh, here's some things. I, I wrote this down. The things that seem to work in the past, I want everybody to hear this. This is good. The things that seem to work in the past are not going to work now. The games, y'all hear me? The games, the entertainment, the programs, the ways of the world and the church, they're not going to cut it anymore. The wounds are too deep. The bondages are too strong. The issues we're facing today are too serious. We desperately need a genuine move of God. And we all say that we want a real move of God to come, but it isn't cheap and it won't be easy. There has to be a great preparation we have to allow God to go deep into our hearts and remove the things that aren't right, including the leaven of the Pharisees. We have to get the revelation 
that we have to die to this world and we've got to pick up our cross and follow him with our whole hearts. God has got to take us deeper and deeper in Christ. Now, I got this from um, Dr. Michael Brown. I love this, and I had to share this. He said this, as we go deeper in Christ, no doubt that the numbers will get smaller because there are few that are committed on that deep level. But if God, y'all better hear me, but if God can get a group that he can work with, that smaller group that have really consecrated their lives and committed themselves to prayer and fasting, they can get a spiritual breakthrough and explosion that could affect millions. And we've seen it throughout church history. Now, you guys know, because I've taught on church and revival history, am I not telling the truth? When you understand things, I need to say this for some of those that are calling to the ministry. When you understand things because you have knowledge of church history and you know the Bible for yourself and you understand end time prophecies so you understand what's to come, all of this plays into a large view. And you're not just looking at just, you know, like April of 2016. You see the big picture. It changes the way your reality is. You understand things from a much broader spectrum. And so with that in mind, I'm going to show you a few things. So number one, people, because of the lack of the power of the Holy Spirit being at work to convict and to draw and to give people the breakthrough they need and help them overcome the sin, therefore a lot of people have created doctrines that condone sin. And pacify people in their sin. Instead of preaching the truth. But they also create doctrines that accommodate the lack of power that they're in. They'll preach things like, well, that was good for 2,000 years ago, but God doesn't move like that anymore. Even though Jesus said, I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. They'll preach in a way that is condoning where they're at. Instead of raising the standard and saying, look, guys, we need to press into God. There's more than what we have. There's more than what we're walking in. I read it here. I just simply believe the Bible. So let's press into God. In 1 Corinthians 4.20, the kingdom of God is not in word but in power. 1 Corinthians 2.4, Paul said, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Acts 10.38, you know Jesus of Nazareth, who, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went around doing good, healing all oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. Christ is not Jesus' last name. I know you guys know this, but some people don't know this. Christ is his title. It's, it's the, the Greek for Messiah, Mashiach in the Hebrew, okay, Messiah. And Christ means the anointed one. That's what it means. And what's interesting about that is an antichrist spirit is a religious spirit. And an antichrist spirit is also an anti-anointing spirit. You know what a Pharisee is? A Pharisee is somebody that may know some scripture, but they can stand and look right at Jesus in the face. The Messiah. And say, you're not the son of God. In fact, you're demon possessed. And what you're doing is demonic. And where the yeast of the Pharisees has worked its way into 
people throughout the body of Christ, they can come into a place where God the Holy Spirit demonstrates His power. There's obvious healings. There's obvious deliverances. There's demonstrations of power where people maybe fall, shake, cry, whatever. Something's going on. It's right there in front of them. And here they are, the the great, 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 great grandchildren of the Pharisees, right? Modern-day Pharisees, the leaven of the Pharisees, and they can look right at that and say, this is not God. In fact, I believe this is the devil. And so, the deeper you go in Christ the less people are going to go with you. I'm going to show you a few things in history, but let me give you a quick example. When you look at the priestly garments, remember the white layer I talk about, the righteousness? There's a lot of people got the white layer. Y'all know what I'm talking about? There's a lot of people out there that say, hey, I'm a Christian, I'm saved. Hey, it's great. Praise God. Okay, a lot of people got that white layer. But there's a lot less people that's got the blue garment where they're baptized in the Holy Spirit and clothed with power. These people are walking in the gifts of the Spirit. They'll pray for some people. They'll get healed, things like that. So they're walking in the full gospel, if you will. What we refer to as maybe Pentecostal. But there's less of them. But then you've got the gold layer. The gold layer has to do with God's manifest presence, His glory. And there's even fewer people that have come into that. This is what I refer to as the revival crowd. They don't just have the white and the blue, but they have the gold layer too. See, there's a lot of people that hang around in the tabernacle. There's a, the tabernacle, the outer courts, the size of a football, football field. There was a lot of Levites. And there's a lot of people in the outer court. But the, only the sons of Aaron can get into the holy place. So there's less people that go into the holy place. And only the high priest can get into the holy of holies. What I'm trying to get at is the deeper you go in God, the less people are going to go. So let me give you a couple of things about history and then I'll start closing this out. Let me encourage you that feel calling to the ministry. You need to go back over these notes. Maybe get them from the internet where it's got all the notes, and go back over this. You need to know this information. All right, so here's some history real quick, and I'm going to show you that down through history, God's remnant. Now, I want you to think about two things before I say this. Now, listen, Moses, Moses lived with Pharaoh in his huge palace. Egypt was the most powerful nation of that time pharaoh was the most wealthy man the most powerful man alive at that time and moses lived in his house moses could have had anything that he wanted but the bible says about moses that he would have rather gone amongst those ragtag small nation no military um, slaves that had just been liberated, basically refugees, to live amongst the Hebrews and suffer with them than he was to live in, in uh, Pharaoh's palace. Also, in the days of Elijah, when Jezebel reigned supreme and had all these false prophets and, they, and there was a persecution against the righteous, out of a whole nation, millions of people God told Elijah, he said, now Elijah, 
You're not alone. I have 7,000 that have not bowed their knee to Baal or kissed him. And you think, well, 7,000, that's a lot of people. But you've got to think about the fact that that was out of a whole nation. That's not a lot of people. So down through history, God's people, I think you're going to see this, have always been the ones that have seemed to be persecuted. If they were really, truly God's people. Now I'm going to show you. So Christianity, after Jesus died and raised from the dead, and Nero comes to power, Christianity starts being persecuted violently. From Nero to Diocletian, there were ten Roman emperors that put Christians in those Colosseums and fed them to lions. They would dip them in oil. They would light them on fire and stick them up on poles to light the streets. Christians were persecuted through ten emperors. They were persecuted violently for their faith. But it didn't work. Satan stirred that up, but Satan was realizing every time I kill one, five more spring up. This isn't working. And so Satan had to figure out a strategy of how, how can I stop this? How can I kill this thing? These followers of that anointed one, the Messiah. How can I kill them? How can I destroy this? And so this was his next strategy to create like a counterfeit. So in 313, there was a man by the name of Constantine who won a famous battle at Milvan Bridge, securing him as the sole emperor of Rome. So now, after Diocletian, now this man named Constantine comes to power. He is the Roman emperor. But before going to battle, he claimed that he had a vision of a cross and the sun and heard a voice tell him in that sign to conquer. And this experience caused him to claim that he had some kind of conversion to Christianity, which who knows? I mean, I don't know his heart. But I do know the fruit of his life. I'm going to show you that in a moment. Constantine issued his famous decree of Milan, which secured Christians' safety and protection from persecution and freedom of public worship. But what you have to understand about Constantine was this. Even though Constantine had professed to be a Christian, he was still known as Pontifus Maximus was his title. I know it's it's a big one, right? Fancy. And he would go to all these different... Um, temple, pagan temples where the demon gods were worshipped and he would oversee the worship of these demon gods. He was still doing this. He didn't repent of this. And so while he's doing that, he's coming back and he's saying, now I am the leader of the Christian church too. I mean, just like these pagan temples, I'm Pontifus Maximus now of the Christians. And so he called himself the first vicar of Christ and basically was the first pope. The Catholic Church under Constantine created this perversion of Christianity. And here's what I want you to see. I'm going to skip some of this. But later on, well, let me go back. Right now, when Constantine's in power, and he's going to these pagan temples, and he's trying to be like the vicar of Christ or like the head of the church, you've got to understand this. The true Christians of that time, they had just lived through horrible persecution. And they had come out of that and they had kept Christianity very pure. And they saw Constantine doing this and they were crying out saying, that is not true Christianity. That is worldly. That's pagan. That's not real. That's, and, and so Constantine had appointed his little buddies and cronies and people to be in power. 
and they're setting up this thing we know as the Roman Catholic system. And he got mad at the Christians that were saying over and over, that is not true Christianity. That is worldly. That's pagan. So he started having him and his cronies and all them begin to persecute the true Christians and imprison the pastors and burn down their churches, etc. And that began the Roman Catholic Church as we know. Let me just read something. Throughout the years that they were in power, popes outlawed the Bible. Translating the Bible and reading the Bible among laity was illegal. It's reported that around 50 million Bible believers were murdered by Rome during their reign of terror. Truly, they became drunk with the blood of the martyrs. There were several other groups down through history, like the Albigenses, that did not submit to the Roman church and viewed the, listen, they viewed the Bible as their ultimate authority. The Albigenses, they were true Christians. They said, no, we don't believe, we believe the Bible, we believe the word of God, that we are children of God by faith. God always had a remnant all through those dark ages. They did not submit to the Roman church and viewed the Bible as their final authority and Rome sought to destroy them all. When Martin Luther brought the great reformation, the Catholic church accused him of uh, simply renewing the heresy of the Albigenses and the Waldenses. And this was, and Luther took this as a compliment. But what I'm trying to say is, as this false church came to power, and understand what I'm saying, this institutionalized thing, something that was not true, it was full of the leaven of the Pharisees. While that was there, the truly people of God were in minority and were persecuted. In fact, and I'm going to get off this in just a moment, but Wycliffe, and you guys have heard of Wycliffe. Wycliffe became known as the morning star of the Reformation as he lived around a thousand years before the Reformation, but he believed in the teaching that came out in the Reformation later. Wycliffe's followers were known as Lollards, and they were very effective soul winners and taught to evangelize. Rome captured them and burned them at the stake with their teachings tied around their neck. Wycliffe's great heresy was that he believed the Bible was the final authority over any man. Wycliffe went strongly against transubstantiation. Rome hated Wycliffe so much. In 1428 that they dug up his body, smashed his bones into pieces, burned them and pronounced a curse over him. Rome called Wycliffe a child of the devil. Because he translated the Bible into a modern translation that the people could understand and read. Now, I could go on and on, but I've got to get off that and go to another example. During the days of the Anglican Church, John Wesley, he was a devout Anglican, his father was. But John Wesley, you guys have heard the story of this man named John Huss and how he was burned alive at the stake because of his faith in Jesus by the church in Rome. Well, the result of Huss, the people he taught were later called the Moravians. You guys have heard the Moravians. Well, the Moravians were persecuted people. And, and there was a man that was very wealthy in Germany named Count Zinzendorf. <laughs> that's, that's a good name right there. Zinzendorf, right? He was, he was a powerful man. He was a count. And he had all this estate. And he, gave, he was wealthy. And he believed in the Moravians. And he believed that they were men and women of God. So he allowed them to live on his estate and protected them. To make a long story short, the Moravians were powerful men and women of God. They were a result of the ministry of John Huss, who had a true relationship with Jesus. And that's why he died. Because the Catholic Church killed him for that. 
the Moravians were, were a people of prayer. They believed God's word and they were evangelists. And the Moravians began to send out missionaries all over. And so some missionaries, and Brother Zach will remember this, some Moravian missionaries were on a boat. And there just happened to be this man by the name of John Wesley on the boat also. And John Wesley, the boat started to, to act like it was going to sink. They were in a storm or something. And he was scared to death. He was thinking, I'm going to die. And even though John Wesley was a good Anglican and he was a very religious person, he did not know if he was saved or not. He didn't know where he would go in eternity. And he looks over at these Moravians. Everybody else is freaking out and panicking. And here's the Moravians. Well, if we die, we die. You know, I mean, they're just fine with it. And John Wesley's like, how in the world can you sit there like that when we're about to die? You have, you're not afraid to die? And they said, no, we're not. And he said, why aren't you afraid to die? Because we know where we're going. How can you know where you're going? Because we have a relationship with Jesus. And they taught Wesley about what it meant to not just be religious, but actually know him. Be born again. Have a relationship with Jesus. And John Wesley wrote in his diary that his heart was strangely warmed. Something started in him. And so John Wesley comes back with this newfound understanding that, hey, it's, we can't just be religious. We've got to have a relationship with Jesus. We've got to know him. We've got to be born again. That came out of the Moravians. The Moravians planted a work in our Carolinas area, Moravian Falls, and they, they had a prayer meetings there for around 100 years. Isn't that awesome? And I believe with all my heart that the prayers in the Moravians is why we had the first great awakening in our nation. Those that are students of this, you know what I'm talking about. So here comes Wesley, and he begins to preach the truth, but nobody wanted to hear it. The institutionalized church of his day rejected the gospel through Wesley. They didn't want to hear what he had to say. It seemed weird to them. And Wesley was not even allowed to go preach at his father's church that he, his father pastored all those years because of his message. So what Wesley had to end up preaching on the streets. Whitfield was not accepted in pulpits, had to preach on the streets. But their preaching on the streets caused the great awakening in our nation too because that all these people started getting saved. So what I'm saying is, is that God's people have always been the ones that did not fit into the institutionalized church, but they were the ones that were the humble ones. And the same thing with Azusa. Azusa Street, around a dozen African Americans meeting with um, Seymour on Bonnie Bray Street really praying for revival. Revival breaks out. They have a move of God and, and the, the mission they were in was like a glorified barn. It was where they kept animals before that and, and the benches were, were wooden. Um, it was just like a two before nailed to these wood planks and stuff. It was just it, what I'm saying is, is that nothing in the natural would attract anybody to Azusa but it was the Spirit of God was moving with such great power. And so these are people that went against the institutionalized church, the leaven of the Pharisees of their generation, they did not want it in their life. They did not go along with it. They could have sold out. They could have said, you know what? We're just going to go along with the teachings of Rome. We'll just go along with what the Anglican church wants. We'll just go along with what everybody else believes. But they didn't want to do that. They said, we know the truth, and we want to stand for the truth, even if it means we're going to die for the truth, and we're going to preach the truth. God's people throughout all of history has never gone along with the institutionalized church, has always kind of been underground and persecuted. Is this making sense? And so here's how I want to close this thing out. The two loaves at Pentecost. Guys, if we want revival, if we want to go deep in God, 
sometimes it can be a bit lonely because the deeper you go in God, the less that the religious crowd is going to understand you. Am I telling the truth? The less that the religious crowd is going to understand you. The leaven of the Pharisees has worked its way through the batches of dough. Jesus predicted it and it has happened. But we can be uh, free from all that leaven if we let God purge it out of us. The leaven of the Pharisees is a religious spirit and it's religious teachings that have got ingrained in people. All right. The two loaves that were waved at the temple that had leaven in them represent now God was speaking through Shavuot, through Pentecost, as the priest would hold up the two loaves that there would come a time and it came at the day of Pentecost after Jesus died that there would come a time when both Jew and Gentile would be seen by God as having leaven in them and that they're going to have to come to Jesus to be saved. And those two loaves would be waved before God. And the way the waving was, there would be the heave offering, which was like this. You go up, and then there'd be the wave back and forth. And it was making the sign of the cross. And the priest didn't even realize they were prophesying that there would come a time both Jew and Gentile would be brought together in Christ at the cross. I believe with all my heart today, that if we as the church had not abandoned our Hebrew roots and we understood that it's out of the soil of the Hebrew roots that Christianity has come, that there would not be statues today. Are y'all, am I losing people? Are y'all hearing this? There would not be statues today in idols that people are praying to, calling themselves Christians. If we understood our Hebrew roots, there wouldn't be statues today in idols that people are praying to. There wouldn't be mixing pagan things with other religions. There wouldn't be so many other denominations. And there wouldn't be so much deception in teaching. God spoke to Abraham, I will bless you, and through you all the nations will be blessed. It was God's will that all people come to him through Christ. In Ephesians 2.14 It says that the wall of separation has been abolished in Christ so that Jew and Gentile can be one in Christ. And God's heart is for unity. And I close with this, but y'all need to hear this part. Psalm 133, how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head coming down the beard, even Aaron's beard coming down the edge of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon coming down uh, upon mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded his blessing. So the unity is where the anointing oil flows. And I know everybody knows this, but let me say this real quick in closing. I said all this because I'm, I'm praying that all of us will get any leaven of the Pharisees out, any teachings that are not actually biblical, things that people have been um, ingrained in them maybe for many years. And it's really hindering you. It's holding you back from the move of God in your life. And it's maybe hindering you from being effective for God and you don't even realize it. But let God purge that out of you. But about unity, Romans 16, 17, I know that you're familiar with this, but I want everybody to hear this because as we move into what's coming, Romans 16, 17 says, mark a divisive person and don't associate with them. How many times I've shared this and still people do it. Titus 3, 10 says, warn a divisive person once, warn them a second time, then have nothing to do with them. 
Proverbs 16, 16 through 19 says there's seven things that God hates. And the last one was the person that sows discord among the brethren. And so if somebody is really of God and they have a problem, because most of the time when people have problems, because it's usually satanically inspired, usually when people have problems, they'll have problems with the pastor, his family, or a church leader, because it's actually an attack against the church, and they don't realize it. But if they were really of God, then they would go to the person and talk to them and work it out with them. That's what the Bible says to do. But instead of doing that, they'll go to other people and talk bad about them and start sowing discord among the brethren. In John 17, verse 20, Jesus was praying here, and he said that they, speaking of his people, might be one as you and I are one and share in our glory, the glory. Unity is where the glory of God will come, will come in real powerful. The glory of God is these two Hebrew words, the Chabad, which is the weighty presence, and the Shekinah, which is the shining. We need the glory in our midst. We need the presence and power of God. So here's the last thing I want to read. As I talked about Dr. Cho's prophecy earlier and different prophecies about revival in America. Here was a prophecy. Ruth Ward Heflin was an awesome woman of God. She's gone home to be with the Lord. But one night when she was in Jerusalem, she was carried away in the spirit. And she says she saw the last day revival. There was a large platform. It was the deepest platform I'd ever seen, she said. I stood on the very, I've stood on very broad platforms, but never one so deep. On this platform, there were at least 100 hospital stretchers filled with critically ill people. I knew that they were there because of the miracles that were taking place in the meeting. So I saw television cameras and reporters from all the major networks, and I knew that they were recording the great revival. And I saw America ablaze with God. And I knew that when revival had fully been ignited in America that Dallas, Texas would be the center of it. That's what's coming, guys. All right. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word tonight, that this will burn into us. Lord, get all this leaven of the Pharisees out. And here's what we'll do. I want to go ahead and shut down recording.